This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 283, The Fall of Java, Part 2, The Battle of Java Sea, and The Battle of Sunda Strait. With Bali to the east and Sumatra to the west captured, not to mention Borneo to the north, the Allied defenders of Java knew they were next. And as there were no other nearby islands to defend, the Dutch-led Allied forces could concentrate around their last main possession— Problem was, they didn't have that much to concentrate with in terms of ships, air power, or men. The Japanese, on the other hand, were bearing down comparatively with unlimited numbers of at least the last two. The opening phase of this coming battle would be at sea, Rear Admiral Takeo Takagi in charge of the naval squadron escorting the 56 troop transports would be the first to cross swords with the enemy. Opposing him would be the Dutch Rear Admiral Karel Dorman, and on paper, at least, the fleets were almost equal. Almost. The Allies had two heavy cruisers, though these were smaller and weaker in firepower and armor than the enemy's two heavy cruisers. Next, Dorman would have three light cruisers to Takagi's two. And lastly, the Allies only had nine destroyers to the Japanese, fourteen. But the four American destroyers were of an age as to not be considered anywhere near equal to the enemies. And then there's the details, where the devil presumably lives. For the Allied fleet, it was made up of four separate navies, so not only would there be communication problems, but each nationality had differing objectives. The U.S. wanted to engage, a payback for Pearl. The Dutch wanted to protect Java, the Australians to protect Australia, while the British were looking to safeguard what was left, namely access to Burma and India. With Palembang of southern Sumatra in Japanese hands, the Allied fleet around Java spent February fighting off Japanese air attacks. As for themselves, they had too few planes to go on the offensive, or really, to protect their ships. So it will come as no surprise that by the end of February, the Allied crews were tired. Their ships were low on fuel and anti-aircraft ammunition. But then there's the Japanese ace, the Type 93 heavy torpedo, the most advanced torpedo at the time. Later, it would be called the Long Lance, as it had a max range of 22,000 yards and carried a larger warhead than the American Mark 15 torpedo, whose range ended at 6,000 yards. This, more than anything else, would decide the coming naval battles. During the second half of February, Allied vessels searched for enemy ships just above Surabaya, near the northeast corner of Java, 
and off the island of Madura, just above Surabaya. For when the enemy came, it was expected to be from that direction. But on February 27th, the patrolling ships were forced to return to Surabaya for refueling. It was then, around noon on the 27th, when a Dutch scout plane spotted an enemy convoy about 50 miles off the Java coast. Dorman wasted no time in ordering his fleet to sail north to engage. The Allies' goal was to sink the transport ships, thus making an invasion impossible. But to do that, first the combined fleet had to get through the transport's escorts. Around 4 p.m., Dorman's fleet first ran into the light cruiser Jinsu. Shells were exchanged. The Battle of Java Sea had begun. Yet, as contact had just been made, the ships were too far apart for any direct hits. Still, Admiral Takagi, knowing the infantry had to get through, ordered his larger escorts to engage, but for the destroyers to close in on the enemy. Dorman matched this opening move with his destroyers. Early on, a shell from a Japanese heavy cruiser struck the British heavy cruiser Exeter, knocking out six of its boilers at 5.15 p.m. With its reduced speed, the Exeter moved away from the front line to avoid Japanese torpedoes. However, several of the other vessels following Exeter also moved away from the engagement, thinking she was maneuvering or following an order from Dorman. Meanwhile, he, Dorman, aboard his flagship, the light cruiser De Ruta, stayed in close to the enemy with the other Dutch light cruiser. Java. By now, the two forces were moving parallel in a westerly direction. By now, Dorman saw what was happening with the Exeter and the other ships, so turned to join them. Their best chance of winning or just surviving was to present a united front. But taking advantage of this turn, the Japanese wisely launched several Type 93 torpedoes. Only one struck, but it was enough. The HNLMS destroyer Cortenar broke into two and disappeared under the waves. With the Exeter still limping, she moved away at best speed, while the Australian light cruiser Perth moved in between the Exeter and enemy vessels to lay down smoke. But if the Japanese were thinking this was over, that the Allies were running away, they were about to be surprised. Using the smoke screen, several Allied destroyers moved closer and started firing at the closest enemy ships. The British destroyer Electra hit Asagamo and the light cruiser Jinsu. Asagamo's engines were damaged, but Electra would pay for this success. She suffered several hits of her own that damaged two gun mounts. Its electrical system forward went out, it lost all communication, and the main steam line busted. The captain was forced to abandon ship. The Electra would sink that afternoon, bow first, with its white ensign still flying. By now, it was close to 6 p.m., so the Allies, specifically the four oldest American destroyers, sent out more smoke and withdrew. Yet, as they laid down the smoke, the destroyers released all their remaining torpedoes, hoping to get a lucky strike in the confusion. But by now, the Japanese ships were out of the torpedoes' range. But the aggressive Admiral Dorman wasn't done. 
not even with this day's fightings. Having lost two ships so far, he needed to reset the game board, so pulled away, but then started a series of maneuvers, hoping to give his ships an opening at one of those enemy troop ships. But playing his own game, Admiral Takagi anticipated this move and sent out scout planes to learn of the enemy's latest moves. Now knowing of the approaching Allied ships, Tagagi sent out several of his vessels, which engaged the Allied ships, starting around 7 p.m. This came to nothing, but as Tagagi did not lose any troop ships, this engagement was his victory. It was now around 9 p.m., and the Allied ships were running low on fuel. The loss of Borneo and Sumatra's oil was being felt. The four older American destroyers were forced back to Surabaya to refuel, besides which they were out of torpedoes. Dorman used this lull to send the destroyer and counter to pick up survivors from Electra, but suddenly, at 9.25 p.m., the British destroyer Jupiter, still with the main group closer to the Java coast, exploded and began to sink. In time, the Allies would find out that the Jupiter had sailed right into a Dutch minefield in the Surabaya Strait. Again, miscommunication. This left Dorman with only four ships, the U.S. heavy cruiser Houston, the Australian light cruiser Perth, and the Dutch light cruisers Java and Deroita, the last being Dorman's flagship. As this much smaller fleet sailed north to search out the enemy, some survivors of the Cortenar were spotted, bobbing up and down, on the waves. Yet Dorman ordered his fleet to keep moving. The enemy was out there, and the last thing the Allies needed was to be caught in a compromising position. However, the encounter, already looking for Electra sailors, nevertheless stopped and picked up 113 men. Dorman's reduced fleet did not stop him from rushing north, once again, due to his character, but also because of his direct order from Admiral Conrad Helfrich to stop the Japanese at all cost. The two fleets came together again around 11 p.m., and this battle would become one of the most intense naval engagements of the Pacific. But still hoping stealth would win him something, Dorman again tried sneaking a shot at the troop ships, but the Japanese again anticipated this. As the firing commenced, the Japanese relied on their long-range torpedoes, but used shells to try to distract the enemy. Each side tried to light up enemy vessels with star shells, but they stayed away from each other. Thus, the shells, when they exploded, could not get in behind any vessel to silhouette it. Instead, all the vessels involved relied on starlight to locate the enemy. So the heavy cruisers Nachi and Huguro let loose their torpedoes. Dorman's de Rorta was leading the way with Perth behind her, then followed by Houston and Java. Suddenly, de Rorta turned and Captain Waller of the Perth assumed Dorman had spotted incoming torpedoes, so did likewise, as did the last two ships. Minutes went by, and then the night lit up as the Java was struck. Some of the men on the Houston saw bodies fly into the air, while some of the crew of the Perth felt the blast. The Java went under in eight minutes. Dorman was now down 
to three ships. Right after the explosion that doomed the Java, a second blast was seen. This was Dorman's ship, De Reuter, being found by a long-range torpedo. But it wasn't the enemy fish that spelled the end of De Reuter. The torpedo set off his anti-aircraft ammunition. The resulting explosions heavily damaged the ship and killed most of the crew. The men of the Perth could feel the heat on their faces, despite being hundreds of yards behind the Dutch ship. Dorman had no choice but to order abandoned ship. Indeed, secondary explosions were still going off. His last radio message to the Houston and Perth was an order for them to head for Batavia. They were to refuel, go around Java's west coast, make for Jalapchap on the south coast, and evacuate as many men as they could. From there, they were to head for Australia. As for Dorman's men that were still alive, they were to be left to the enemy's mercy. As the Houston pulled away, its crew counted at least nine more explosions from De Reuter. Admiral Helfrich had ordered Dorman to fight to the end, and the man did exactly that. The Battle of the Java Sea was over. Yet what about Java itself? To hear one pilot from the U.S. 19th Bond Group tell it, Java died that night in the gunfire, which came rolling over the water. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But the two Allied ships were not done yet. That night, they raced west, seeking fuel, a rest, and more shells. To be sure, Admiral Tagagi searched for them, but in the darkness, his quarry made their escape. Tagagi called off the search at 3 a.m. Houston sent a message to Admiral Glassford saying, expect them in Batavia around 10 a.m. the next morning. The men of Houston were tired and laid down wherever they could. As this trip would take hours, hatches were opened to cool the lower levels. Still, the men were optimistic, as they had just survived a horrendous battle. But now, there was nothing to do but round Java's coast, pick up those who had made it south, and head for Australia. 
The Perth and Houston reached Batavia in the early afternoon of February 28th. The smaller vessels in port were either damaged by Japanese air attacks or listing because they had been abandoned. The town itself was equally quiet. The natives had disappeared, waiting out the battle to see who they would serve, the Dutch or the Japanese and their greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. Captain Rooks and Waller were told that, as far as a Dutch air reconnaissance knew, there were no enemy ships within 70 miles, that the two Allied warships had a 10-hour window. But then selfishness reared its ugly head. The Dutch, getting busy to destroy the port, gave the Perth and Houston large life rafts. But as for oil, that was a different story. Per Admiral Helfrich, no further fuel will be issued to U.S. naval vessels. But then Waller and Rooks told the harbormasters that all the Dutch ships had been lost. To this, the Perth was given 300 tons and the Houston a little less. The two ships got underway at dusk. At 11 p.m., Java's coastline dropped away as they reached Bantam Bay, next to the northern part of Sunda Strait, on Java's northwest corner. The strait was a 15-mile-wide opening between Java and Sumatra, but first the bay had to be explored. Fifteen minutes later, Captain Waller, leading the way, now deep inside Bantam Bay, spotted a silhouette. Perhaps it was a Dutch patrol craft. The captains had been told to make sure they did not fire on these in a panic. So Waller had his chief yeoman flash a challenge on the Alda signal lamp. The response made no sense. Waller did not play games when it came to signals, so had the challenge flashed again. Then the vessel turned, and the certain silhouette of a Japanese destroyer was seen. It began to make smoke. Captain Rooks and the Houston, 900 yards behind the Perth, spotted the enemy just after Waller. Rooks ordered general quarters just to be safe. But as the Perth opened up with its large guns, Rooks knew another battle was about to start. The Houston threw up star shells, but spotted nothing. Still, she followed Perth, who seemed to be closing in on something. The other option was to make a run for it, but there was just enough moonlight to make them visible to the enemy. No, better to face the threat here than hope it did not find them. At 11.30 p.m., the Houston sent out a message, one that turned out to be her last. To Admiral Glassford, to the commander of the 16th Naval District, to Radio Corregidor, and to the Chief of Naval Operations. Enemy forces engaged. Unbeknownst to the Allied vessels, they had already been spotted. Commander Yasuo Yamashita of the destroyer Fubuki became aware of the two vessels as they entered the bay. He followed behind them, five miles away. And when he saw Waller flash a challenge, he sent out nine long-range torpedoes. Fortunately for the Allies, all nine missed. Yet Yamashita then radioed to the fleet, two mysterious ships entering the bay. Admiral Kenzaburo Hara, commander of the escorting force of the Western Attack Group, 
responded by sending out three cruisers and six destroyers to find the enemy ships, and there would be others. It wasn't long before someone on the bridge of the Perth said, There are four to starboard. There are five on our port side. By God, they're all around us. The Japanese searchlights, like their torpedoes, had a longer range than the western ships. Not that it mattered, for Waller and Rooks told the crews, If you see a light, and it's not from one of our two ships, fire at it. Fire at will. The spotters riding high on the Allied vessels soon located transport ships closer to the coast. My God, the captains figured out, we ran right into the enemy, about to land their invasion force. Yet the Houston and Perth, low on magazines, could not afford to take shots at the transport ships. To survive this sudden storm, they would have to husband what they had. Ironically, the invaders were just as surprised by the appearance of the two enemy ships as were Waller and Rooks. Also ironic, a report of this massive Japanese fleet coming south was sitting on the desk of the commander of the Dutch East Indian First Army when the two captains came ashore at Baptavia. In the confusion, the Major General had no idea the two ships were in port. Having gone almost as far as they could go west, Waller turned the Perth north to begin to exit Bantam Bay. The Houston followed. By now, shells were thick in the air, torpedoes in the water. In fact, before this battle of Sunja Strait was over, three Japanese transport ships would be sunk, a fourth damaged by friendly torpedoes. Meanwhile, the Allied vessels were shooting in all directions, in all ranges. As the Perth and Houston began to exit the bay, three more enemy destroyers came upon their port side from Sunda Strait and lashed out with torpedoes. Other vessels from two other directions did the same. As some of these ships did not have time to aim for the Perth, they directed their fire at the Houston. Just after 11.40 p.m., Captain Rooks dodged 28 fish. Waller and Rooks were experienced enough to know that, one, the enemy's searchlights were blinding their men to the real numbers and locations of enemy vessels, and two, the Japanese ships using their lights would alternate turning theirs off and on so not to give the Allied ships a proper target. Sure enough, this peekaboo game commenced. The crews of Perth and Houston countered by firing at the lights. Despite the tenacity and courage of the crews of all the ships in this battle, it came down to numbers. At 11.26 p.m., the Perth took a shell through its forward funnel. Then another hit the flag deck. Twenty minutes later, a third hit her waterline on the starboard side, which began to let in water in the seamen's mess. The Houston wanted to offer aid, but at that moment, a pair of torpedoes, one to each side, was passing by the ship. On the port side, that fish came within ten feet. Captain Rook's frequent course changes had to take a back seat. Being pinned to a course, however, a shell struck the Houston's forecastle. Many of the men of Houston had been together since October of 1940, and Commander Mayer had worked them hard. 
it was now paying off. The destroyer, Hirokazi, was hit on her bridge and engine room. The destroyer, Shirakuri, was also struck. Still, the brave crews of the Japanese destroyers were coming closer than 10,000 yards to the enemy vessels. The Houston could hear their adversaries cry out when they were hit. At 12.15 a.m., the Houston was hit aft of the starboard side. The aft engine room went quiet. On the deck above the aft engine room, steam started shooting up from now-broken high-pressure pipes. The repair crews, due to this released heat, could not get in close enough to fix anything, and the five-inch gun crews had to abandon their posts. But the Marines here simply waited for the heat to die down, and then jumped back on their guns. Meanwhile, Captain Waller, in the lead, kept firing his 21-inch torpedoes, if only to force the nearby enemy vessels to alter course. Waller, during all this time, was mostly quiet, calmly ordering that an enemy light be shot out or asking for a status report. But still going along at 28 knots, suddenly a long-range torpedo struck the Perth near her forward engine room. Perth started slowing down. Becoming an easier target now, gunfire soon knocked off Perth's seaplane catapult aft. Then her gyro was taken out, and fire control went over to local control. Reports came in that several turrets were out of projectiles. Then a second torpedo struck, which lifted the ship right out of the water. The entry point seemed to be just under the bridge. To this, Waller replied, Christ, that's torn it. Abandon ship. He ordered that Perth should be kept at half speed, so when the men went overboard, the sinking vessel would not suck them down. Word was spread manually as the lifeboats were put to sea. The Perth listed to port, which only increased. Soon her side was in the water, but still she was moving forward. Water was entering forward and flowing to the rear. A third and then fourth torpedo struck Perth. As she was still moving, she didn't so much sink as drive herself into the sea. As for Captain Waller, he was already, mercifully, dead, still on the bridge, along with some of his officers and chiefs. About ten minutes after midnight, Captain Rooks could see that Perth was going down. Whatever the odds had been before that moment, they were now impossible. And with that being the case, Rooks had Houston turn starboard to head back towards the enemy transports. If he was going to lose all, the enemy was going to lose much. Bearing down on the Houston were two cruisers and two squadrons of destroyers. As such, the vessel began taking hits fast and furious. The Houston's list increased. It was practically out of shelves. But all the while, Rooks stayed calm. His voice over the loudspeaker never gave away what he had to be feeling. As the Japanese searchlights sought out the Houston, each time it inadvertently lit up a friendly vessel, whether transport or escort, the Houston opened up on it with its last few shells. The attackers had put close to 78 torpedoes in the water, and now some of those were making their way to shore, having missed the Houston. The infantrymen aboard those ships that were struck 
by friendly fire, would later blame the Americans when they became POWs. Just as Houston's aft section had cooled down from the loss of steam and the Marines returned to their guns, a torpedo struck to starboard below the communications deck. Central Station, or Damage Control Center, and the plotting room lost power. Yet the men there were still alive. Why? Because the torpedo had been a dud. Still, the men moved away from that part of the ship, should the fish find some other way to detonate. Next, a shell from an enemy cruiser hit the gun house of Turret 2. This was another dud. Still, sparks flew out from the impact. And as the turret's powder flaps were opened to allow the men in the powder circle to pass powder bags into the gun chamber, the sparks had something to ignite. The resulting flash killed many of the men in that area and made the Houston that much more visible to the enemy. With systems failing all around, soon turret one was silent. The Houston had lost her last large gun. Still, she had 50 caliber guns on the tops, and they never stopped firing. Soon these men turned their attention to several speedboats closing in. The 50 caliber disintegrated one small boat and split the other in half. But just before she died, the second boat fired off a torpedo. This fish hit the Houston on the starboard side, forward of the catapult tower. The Japanese warships moved in for the kill. By now, the last of Houston's five-inch guns were going quiet, out of shells, which left only star shells. But at close range, they were equally deadly. So when a destroyer came in, according to one account, no more than the length of a building, the star shells were sent over towards the searchlight. The men nearest could hear the Japanese screaming in pain as the magnesium flares led into them. The Houston, clear of Bantam Bay, was surrounded. She was listing, taking on water, but still moving. Her main guns were out, but the ship was not quiet. That's because of the almost non-stop hits she was taking from various directions. Captain Rooks summoned the ship's marine bugler, Jack Lee. Rooks simply said, Bugler, sound abandoned ship. Then Captain Rooks began climbing down the ladder from the signal bridge. That's when a salvo hit nearby. All in its immediate vicinity were killed. Rooks was struck in the head and upper torso by shrapnel. A Chinese mess attendant called Buddha by the crew came over. He held Rooks in his arm, rocking him as if rocking a child to sleep. A few minutes later, Buddha looked up and said, Captain dead, Houston dead, Buddha died too. As Houston was still making 21 knots, when the lifeboats were lowered, they disappeared behind the still-moving cruiser. Seeing this, Commander Roberts, now in charge, countermanded the abandoned ship order. It was 12.29 a.m. But many of the men never heard this and got clear of the Houston as best they could. Roberts couldn't change anything, and so at 12.33 a.m., another abandoned ship order was announced. In small groups and pairs, men began jumping overboard or climbing into the few lifeboats left.
With Houston listing even more to starboard, the Japanese vessels kept up their fire. But that's when the last Allied ship of the Battle of Sunda Strait seemed about to right herself, perhaps from counter-flooding from another torpedo strike. But then she began to go down again for the last time. That was when some crew members floating away on a raft saw red tracers departing from her foremast. Marine Gunnery Sergeant Walter Standish was still firing as the water raced up to claim him. With that, the Battle of Sunda Strait was truly over. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. During the month of February, the Japanese 16th Army, under the command of Lieutenant General Hitoshi Imamura, began to collect itself at Cameron Bay, Indochina. This had started on January 30th, as Imamura had issued orders for the coming attack of Java. The men spent their time waiting in jungle warfare exercises. After the events of the Battle of Java Sea, by 2 a.m. on March 1st, all the convoy ships, in their dozens, were at their designated disembarkation points, just off the Java coast. The Nasu and Fukushima detachments were by then close to Mirak, on Java's northwest corner, and at 2 a.m. started coming ashore. Closest to them was the KNIL Coastal Detachment Mirak of the 12th KNIL Infantry Battalion, but their company-sized force, nor their machine guns and 150mm searchlight, was able to stop the landings. Nearby, the Sato Detachment started landing men just after midnight on March 1st. Yet their welcome to Java was anything but gracious. During the Battle of Sunda Strait, when the Houston and Perth were the only vessels left to deflect the Japanese, many of the torpedoes coming at them missed and continued on, some striking friendly transport ships. For fully loaded transport ships, the Rujo Maru, the Sakura Maru, the Moriah Maru, and the Tasumo Maru were hit, of which one went straight down. But it was the Rujo Maru that was carrying Lieutenant General Imamura, the commander of the invasion force. As his vessel was listing badly, the general jumped overboard. Twenty minutes later or so, he was picked up and brought ashore. His aide, trying to make the best of a bad situation, congratulated his superior on his successful landing. As for the invading troops of the Western Force, all were ashore by 12.45 a.m. 
on March 1st. If the Allied plans involved keeping the enemy off Java, they failed in their opening move. There were additional landings on the far side of Batavia, at Ervatan Watan by the 230th Regiment, and further east at Krangen, near the island's northwest corner, by the 48th Division and 56th Regiment. With a beachhead established, Lieutenant General Imamura set up his headquarters at Sarong, just below Banham Bay. By now, the 2nd Division had been broken into three detachments, the Nasu, Fukushima, and Sato. The Nasu were to push southeast to Bedtenzorg, about 25 miles due south of Batavia. Thus, any Allied troops retreating from the capital would be walking into another trap. This left Fukushima and Sato detachments to move due east for the capital, Batavia. Yet they were to move in such a way as to capture other important towns nearby. Getting back to the Nassau detachment, as they were still moving to the southeast, they reached Louis-Lyon, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers still west of Bettenzorg, their goal. But here, the D battery of the U.S. 2131st Field Artillery, with its accurate fire, took out many enemy tanks and trucks. Then the Australians of Black Force held them up even more, as the Louis-Lyon Bridge over the river there had already been destroyed, with the Aussies manning pillboxes on the east side of the river. But this was the best of an already bad situation. The plan had been, should the Japanese land on the western end of the island, Black Force, with a regiment of Dutch infantry, were to drive west and hold the enemy up along the beaches, if possible, for as long as possible. But due to conflicting orders, when Black Force showed up at the bridge, it was already destroyed by the Dutch, per someone else's order. It must be noted that Black Force was under the command of British Major General H.D.W. Sitwell, but the Dutch troops were under the command of General Hen Ter Porten, a recipe for miscommunication and disaster. Still, Black Force would hold up the Japanese here for two more days before threats from other directions forced the Aussies to retreat to the southeast towards Sukabumi. Indeed, as Batavia to the north was being approached from the east and west on March 4th, Major General Schilling, the commander of the 1st KNIL Infantry Division, stationed at the capital, told Brigadier Blackburn what was happening and that the Commander-in-Chief, Lieutenant General Heriter Portin, would have to leave the main city soon. Further to this, Black Force was to hold out for another 24 hours to keep the way to the south open. Thus, Black Force's more determined stance. Yet that same day, March 4th, as the Allies around the capital were beginning to move south, General Maruyama of the 2nd Division was told of this and guessed they would be heading to Butenzorg, due south of Batavia. If he could capture that city before or just after the men with Commander-in-Chief Lieutenant General Porten arrived, the war in western Java would be over that much sooner. Thus he put the Fukushima detachment with an infantry battalion of the Sato detachment and ordered it 
post haste south of the capital. By the noon of the next day, March 5th, the Nasu detachment had taken the city of Jampia in between the capital and Butenzorg, which sped up the drive of the Japanese forces heading for Butenzorg. Further, the area to the northwest of Butenzorg had already been captured by Japanese troops. This made retreating harder for those leaving Batavia. As General Maruyama did not want to wait, on the night of the 5th, the Nasu detachment, with one battalion each from Fukushima and Sato, launched themselves at Butenzorg, having no time to carry out reconnaissance. The attackers lost men, to be sure, but had them to spare, relative to the defenders. By 5 a.m. March 6th, the city's outer defenses had been breached. But this was not the clear Japanese victory it seemed to be. The Allied defenders, about 3,000, mostly Dutch, under the command of KNIL Lieutenant Colonel Milius, knew they could not hold out. So after inflicting casualties, they began to leave the town by morning. They headed east by southeast towards Bandung, about 40 miles away. But to make sure these Dutch troops did not turn around and launch a surprise attack, one infantry company from the Nassau detachment was sent to give chase. Meanwhile, the Sato detachment, minus one battalion, was sent north up the main road, crossing the rivers as best they could, what with all the bridges being blown, and reached the outskirts of Batavia. As they had started out before the fighting at Bentuzor got underway, they were at the capital by dusk, and thus surprised the Dutch defenders. They had no choice but to surrender at dusk. By 9.30 p.m. that same night, March 5th, the capital was occupied. With the capital fallen and Butenzorg occupied, the next city each side focused on was Badung to the southeast, again about 40 miles away. Yet it would not hold up the invaders any more than the other city defenses. Back on March 1st, the Shoji Detachment, led by Colonel Toshishigi Soji, made up of the 230th Regiment, along with a mountain artillery, an engineer company, an anti-tank battalion, a light tank company, an AA battery, a bridge material company, and a motor transport company, hence able to operate independently, began landing at 3.30 a.m. on March 1st. They had been attacked by air when 50 miles away from Java, but the number of planes were inadequate to any serious damage. Soji was fortunate, though this was expected, that there was no one at Ervatan Wetan, about 70 miles east of Batavia, to oppose the landing. The Allied air attacks from Glen Martins, Brewster Buffaloes, and Hurricanes continued throughout the day, but again, the numbers and or accuracy were not enough to slow down the disembarkation or the enemy troops from moving out on pre-assigned missions. Like the taking of the Kalijati airfield, located about 50 miles southwest of Eratan Watan, from which these Allied air attacks were originating. Another advance party left the shoreline and started making for the airfield, but at 10.30 a.m., it ran into the 3rd KNIL Cavalry Unit of about 100 men who had been sent out 
to destroy a nearby bridge. Shots were exchanged and a stalemate ensued. But at 1045, the Wakamatsu unit showed up to help take on the Dutch. The Japanese pushed back the defenders and made their way to the airfield, taking other small towns as they went. Coming upon the Kalijati airfield, the Japanese found it was being defended by two British AA batteries, about 30 RAF personnel turned infantrymen, and about 150 Dutch troops. Yet the attackers were coming in tanks and trucks and coming in fast. Still, the defenders, though their outer perimeter had been penetrated, put up quite a defense. This allowed an Australian squadron of Hudson's to lift off for Badong. However, a British Blenheim squadron was not so lucky. Flight Lieutenant M.K. Holland described the opening scene this way. We phoned Air HQ in the mountains, Badong, and explained to them what was happening and also the danger of our position. HQ replied that there was absolutely no danger and that all we had to do was remain by our aircraft and await further orders. On coming out of the building, we heard some machine gun fire. We leapt into our powerful American car, and as we drove out onto the landing ground, a Japanese tank came around the corner of a hangar and opened fire on us. We shot across the landing ground at high speed to our men who were on the far side. We abandoned the car and leapt into a ditch just as the Japanese opened fire with their trench mortars. Most frightening. The shells seemed to fly about in all directions and explode where least expected. Often they exploded above the ground, which made it practically useless to take shelter in a ditch. However, as one flight officer, a Peter Gibbs, after taking off, strafed the Japanese, they turned their anger towards the remaining defenders. No quarter was given on either side. By 12.30 p.m., the airfield had fallen, with at least a third of the defenders either dead, wounded, or captured. The Japanese figured out pretty quickly that the enemy planes that made it off the ground were headed to the Andir airfield near Badung, due south by some 30 miles. Hence, on the morning of March 2nd, that airfield was hit hard by enemy aerial bombing. When the last two hurricanes were destroyed by the ground crews so the enemy could not possess them, all other Allied planes on the island were ordered to make for Australia as best they could. A few Hudsons made it by having their range extended by in-flight refueling with petrol tins, a rubber hose, and an open window next to the wing tank opening. But getting back to Badung, the now largest city in western Java that the Allies still held, its time was up as men from the Nassau detachment approached it from the west on March 9th, while elements of the Shoji detachment came from the north on the same day. Fortunately, this attack went well for the invaders, as the day before, Lieutenant General Maruyama had been told that the Dutch were sending out a proposal for surrender. Maruyama wanted to capture as much territory as he could before that moment. Now, Maramura could report that all lands from Eritan Wetan on the north coast to Badung in the center of this section of the island and all the territory to the west of it was under Japanese control. 
Next time, we'll cover the East Java campaign and the end of the fall of Java. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.